Hi, everyone. Welcome to STEM From's podcast. Where does your journey stem from? Hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we have a very special episode in store for you. We are joined not by one, but by two of my former colleagues, each of whom have an incredible story to tell. So first, we have Ben Ormond. Um, and let's welcome to the stage, Ben. Howdy. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Oh, living the dream, friend. Living the dream. Ben received his bachelor's degree from the University of Portland and his master's from Gonzaga. Ben is a director of care transformation for Optum and was previously with Kaiser Permanente's Washington region, where he served as a business operations director for the surgical specialties. The main focus in his career has been to understand the complexities of our particularly um, uh, our particular healthcare ecosystem with the express purpose of turning that knowledge into more affordable, higher quality healthcare for patients. A native of the Pacific Northwest, he lives in Seattle with his wife and puppy, and he watches way too many movies, even for me. His other hobbies include analog technology, reading books, and attempting to maintain his yard. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And next, we have Doug Herta, and let's welcome to the stage, Doug. Hello. Doug received his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan with a focus on both economics and political science, as well as a graduate degree from Indiana University with a master's in public policy analyst. He is currently a principal data analyst for Optum, focusing on clinical performance. Doug has led an incredibly eventful life thus far. Following undergrad, he was a Peace Corps volunteer in uh, Central African Republic, fo focusing on apiculture, also known as beekeeping. Um, and while there, he also focused on water source projects and school building repair. He has held a variety of positions ranging from cancer research data analyst, IT manager at Sound Transit, orthopedic surgery cost and utilization analysis, carrier enrollment forecasting, and inpatient cost and utilization optimization, all of which uh, had data gathering, savings assessments, and then reporting. He currently re resides in Seattle with his wife. So welcome, Doug. Well, thank you very much for having me. So as uh, you all can tell, we are in for a fun-filled episode. Um, I'm so excited to have both of these folks on here to tell their respective stories as, as well as their current work and their current sort of ideology around um, higher education and the healthcare system. We get an amalgamation of both. So let's first talk a little bit to Ben. Um, if you can give us a brief introduction beyond what the biography um, stated, as well as what drives you as a person. Sure. Um, let's do the reverse first because I'm, you know, all over the place. But what drives me is usually if there is a possibility, an elegant solution to complex problems or else what are we doing here? Um, I think really it, it always comes back to that. Is there something I can add or benefit for whatever we're doing, whether it be um, in certain cases, working out with friends all the way through the, the jobs we get paid to do and all that fun stuff. So that's what drives me. And then off the page, I'm mildly a goofball, but I also like to get stuff done. Is that mildly a goofball? I'm extremely goofy. <laughs> I apologize. Okay. This is probably going to go off the rails and it only took like three minutes. So yeah, that's it. We're at 402. So okay. 402. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> Um, Doug, can you answer the same question? Yeah, I I did not come from a technology background, 
but I then found technology to be so fascinating. Um, back in the day, um, working at the Audit Bureau for the state of Wisconsin was really where I, I started really getting interested in where I am now. And I think what drives me right now is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of been some recent work where I'm turning to people I work with and saying, are you doing things that are not value add to, to your work? Are you spending a lot of time cutting and pasting? Are you spending a lot of time doing things that are not, that a computer could do that are not your core need or competency? And if you are, let me step in and help you try and automate, change, uh, create new processes so that you can concentrate on what, what's important and not what has to be done that you really, we, we've got to come up with a solution so you don't have to do those things. And so kind of really working on a hands-on approach to getting people to a spot that they're doing what they enjoy doing and that they're being productive in doing it and not doing a lot of really low value work. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, I think that's highly valuable, not only to corporations and organizations, but also to leaders and, and to teams. individuals. If, yeah. if individuals are spending a lot of time doing really tedious work and they're really smart people who you want them doing smart things, um, this is where you have to say, okay, let's build out a system to allow you to un unleash doing what you really want to do or what you're good at. And if you're doing things that aren't adding a lot of value or that we can change, then, then I'm all for it. And this is where this is where I find technology to be the great thing is it frees people to do what they want to do or what they're good at. I was gonna say, can I make you blush a little bit? <laughs> so if you think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs at work, like less about the emotional piece, but more at work, I think what Doug is pretty good at using science, technology, all of the the tools that folks often disregard, or they just think this is how you do it. This is how we were taught to do it. This is how we've done it. This is how we'll always do it. It's challenging that and saying, can I redefine your baseline to get you to being at that higher, higher level in the, in an effective, efficient manner? No, but I think, I think you stated Ben, um, elegant solution to complex problems, which I think is, um, sort of a, a thesis, right. Of, of how technology could be enabled to help humans, create um, and answer complex problems, right? And do you actually enable it via that way? Um, how, how would you comment on that a little bit further? I think, I think it can. Um, it can enable, I think you have to ask the question though, like, can it, I think what Doug's really good at, and once again, I'm you know, mildly deflecting because I like hearing Doug talk, um, but also he asks people about from step A to Z, like what is the process you're currently doing and what's the end result? It's almost um, the five paragraph essay we all had to learn back in the day of what's your thesis or your hypothesis, what's your supports? And he usually asks, what are you what's, what is the fifth paragraph and how can I cut out whatever rigmarole you had to go through to get to that fifth paragraph if necessary or if able to? And that might not work as an analogy. I just thought of it, but. <laughs> One of the things, te technology people sometimes fall in love with their tools and don't fall in love with understanding a process. And if they're in love with their tools and not really trying to 
determine the process that they're trying to solve for, you end up with you know a lot of waste and then a lot of revision and a lot of just lost time, lost productivity. And so one of the things I think you you do and I do is say, you know, okay, let's talk about a day in the life of cycling these patient records from this one system to this other system. What needs to happen to them? And then what is what is the output? You know, what's a day in the life of this patient record going through all these different hands? And once you talk to people about something like that, then it becomes, okay, now we can explain the process and now we can build something. It's not about the technology, it's about the process. Yeah. And that's how you create an elegant solutions is by understanding the steps that have to have to be taken to, to get to that final answer. Good point, yeah. So my, my follow-up question then would be, in educational systems, at least for, for an end of one Karina, um, is that uh, I remember teachers focusing most on the process rather than the actual problem at hand and how do you solve it and or how do you convey a story adequately and sufficiently um, to answer the question at hand. Um, and so when I, when, when I hear you say that, it's like, okay, well, how did you equip yourself to think in that manner? Because it didn't just come naturally, I, I would assume. It reminds me of, in grad school, there were two separate statistics teachers. One statistics teacher wanted you to run all of the, um, all of the different formulas by hand. So you had to know how to do a Kruskal-Wallis test. You had to know, you need, needed to know how to do the math behind producing um, results for these different tests. And the other professor was like, no, computers do that now. What you need to be able to understand is once you get that output, how do you interpret it? How do you actually use it to say, this is a good analysis, this is a bad analysis? And to be honest, yes, I did go for that second professor because if we can get statistical answers out of the computer, you know, as, as long as we've run it correctly, right? If you're getting correct answers, you need to know more about how to interpret these things and be able to say, no, this is not, you know, this is not proving anything, this hypothesis is wrong, or you've used the wrong test, rather than saying, okay, I know in my head now how to calculate these you know, you know, or, or on paper, right? Or on computers, I can, I can run these formulas. You don't really, I'm sorry, you don't really need to do that. You, you need to spend your time being able to interpret the results that are coming out. And this is where we are as a society. We don't, we don't need to, we, we need to have a better understanding of what we're looking at in terms of these results. I also want the time log that uh, it took Doug how many minutes to say this is where we are as a society. So. <laughs> check um i think but i i violently agree with you on that like telling the narrative is so much more important than like rich realistically going through the data sets like, so doug and i work together often and oftentimes we are caught up in meetings with folks in economics who are like oh so we ran it this way and that way and this way and this was and I'm like so what does that mean and they, and they can't verbalize the mounds of data that we are looking at to say, this means that patients are having better quality, lower quality, that we saved money, lost money. It, it's They were so obsessed with the black and white piece of the math that they forgot we're doing this all for a purpose to try and 
answer a question of some sort. And that's where full disclosure, I got, so I was pre-med in my undergrad degree. I started as, and I got really turned off because much like Doug, I didn't get the choice of having the professor who, this is the black and white, I need you to do this exclusively. When I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna be able to Google this at some point in my life. And I wanna know the concepts. I wanted to talk about what this could actually benefit but I wasn't getting that repeatedly. Like I, I could, I could get decent grades on the test if I wanted, but I was being such a stubborn, stubborn human that I was like, I refuse. I want to talk to you about this, and I don't just want to come in and do the test of what you have just pushed at me. I want to talk about these things, and I, I mean, it probably is why uh, it's probably due to a distinct personality defect. But in the long run, it meant. I, I redeclared my major, but I was still so fascinated by every piece of science, technology, engineering. That like I loved those courses, parts of them that I could actually gain from. And then I went, you know, I'm a hippie. I have a philosophy undergrad, but I got to take all of the courses I wanted to. Not saying very well at times, but yeah, I you know to juxtapose your experience, I didn't take a single course that I wanted to because everything fulfilled a GE and oh. everything was for a major. Oh. I know it was it was god awful. It was awful. Yeah, it was yeah rough. But when I think about it, um, I, I think about organic chemistry as the feeder school or the feeder class for med school. I mean that is essentially they look at your orgo grade mm -hmm. and that's it. And and. Reflecting back on it, I, I always thought that it was because of memorization and, and you know, memorizing a, a sufficient amount of information similar to med school. And that's, no, it's actually how you have to think about problems in order to solve it, to do organic synthesis um, to some degree and to some extent. Um, but I was talking to a surgeon, not one that we know. Oh. Um, and he said that his favorite course was actually micro um, and that what the professor did was open book, open note, um, and here's the exam, but it's going to be, here's your problem. How would you solve it? Oh, that would have been so cool. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because that's, so I'll, I'll put it this way. I was a, my undergrad degree I got in four years, there were hard parts of it because I did not enjoy it because I didn't have. I had a few professors like that. And in those courses, like I thrived, but so often I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't engaging. I wasn't in, digging it because to get my credits, I just needed to be there and check a box. But my grad school degree, I 4 owed because every professor I had had some form of engagement like that, where it was, oh, I get to use this. I get to engage with it. I get to get a little fancy with it and put my own spin on it. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah, I I ended up pursuing a double major. The University of Michigan doesn't allow a major and a minor. You have to double major. So I double majored, and I started in economics. And one of the things that struck me is all of our models began with perfect information, perfect mobility of labor, <laughs> you know, all of these things that just don't exist in the real world. Yeah. And yeah. now we're going to run this model. And you're like, no, but that's not how the world works. And so I kind of then got interested in the non model of political science of what's what's going on in the world and how these political systems work or not work and so it was kind of a relief to me to have kind of a background in, in understanding how economic modeling works but also have like some real kind of a history of of how political systems evolve and and, and it was it was 
it was a good thing to get your get your mind working because I think sometimes when you get into the educational system and that's teaching you this 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 very uh, this very rigid type of format in terms of how you think about things and the theories underneath it are, are things that don't exist in reality. You start saying, okay, I'm doing this Edgeworth box thing in economics and we're on a desert island trading t-shirts and, and food. And you're like, no, we're, we're not there. We're, we're somewhere else. I'm somewhere else. Um, and so, it, yeah, it was interesting and it, it gives you a baseline for doing things, but you also want some realism in it as well. So be that as it may, um, you kind of have to thrash the educational system to get something out of it that you want and not just have them you know tell you what what needs to go down. <laughs> talk at you <laughs> well and i think the the other piece there then is how do you pivot out of that system into the real world right and so if i may you've had a lot of pivots in your life and yeah. i'm directing that to doug <laughs> oh. <laughs> well it's it's yeah, it is one of those things where it's like, oh, I want to be a policy analyst. And, and you know, one of the things was Indiana University had a, the School of Public and Environmental Affairs was like the second rated public policy school in the country. And it was ahead of the Harvard School, um, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And Harvard didn't like that because they liked to be number one, you know, in everything. But one of the things that I thought was really stimulating about this was, was we were really we were taking law courses that were run like a law course. And if you've ever been to a law course, you're, you're called on <laughs> to say, hey, tell me about this. And so you, you got a real flavor of law. You got a real flavor of doing statistical analysis and then basically going out and doing a cost-benefit analysis to the recycling center in Bloomington, Indiana, and actually having a real-world consulting gig during grad school. And, and this was the thing that I thought was stimulating with that particular program is that it really kind of was going out of the box. It was not academia. It was, okay, we are now our class. We are now a consulting firm. And the, the, uh, the recycling department in Bloomington, you know, Indiana needs to know, should they buy a densifier? You know, should they, you know, piggyback and have a trailer behind the garbage truck? Or should they have a separate recycling truck? You know, real questions. And, and we were able to use our knowledge and basically do the research to figure out, you know, you, you know operations research type stuff to, to, to give them a suggestions about what they should be doing. They should buy the densifier, by the way. Oh. And they shouldn't have separate trucks. So how, there you have it. Can I ask, how did you get into healthcare then? Isn't that funny? Yeah, um, hit me, come on. Uh, Legislative Audit Bureau in Wisconsin, I, the University of Wisconsin Health Care System or the hospital wanted to become an independent government entity. What they were trying to do was break the union and maintain like government bonding rates. So they wanted all of the goodies that you would get as a public sector and also all of the goodies that you would get in the private sector. And they asked us to analyze this. And I started to get into healthcare and like seeing how that all looked, at least in this microcosm of medicine, Wisconsin. And that piqued my interest. When I moved out to Seattle, I was looking for a programming job, right? 
And then I got picked up by the uh, Center for Health Studies at Group Health at oh. that time, way back when. Um, and so then I started becoming, um, started doing program for these longitudinal cancer studies. And that's when I started to, ooh, you know, the story of my life, enrollment, claims, and pharmacy <laughs> data. <laughs> that's kind of been my life since then. Awesome. <laughs> so how did you get into healthcare, Ben? Well, you know, it's the family business. Uh, no, uh, so. Hey, hey, who are you talking exactly, to Exactly. I, I had to tee it up. <laughs> so uh, father is a serial entrepreneur and my mom is a clinical pharmacist who worked at Group Health. So was always like healthcare adjacent, always talked a lot about it. Um, growing up, really wanted to become a physician for a large part of my life because I thought it was something different than what it ended up being, mm-hmm. like wanted to solve problems and get to engage in that way. And I think it could have been in some way, but I got more interested in other stuff as I started learning about healthcare. So the summer after my freshman year of college was home working at a music store was kind of uh, my version of a beach bum, which is, you know, I had a job, but my mom was like, hey, they're hiring temporary admins at where she worked. I was like, sweet, I'll apply. So then uh, that summer I had two jobs uh, because I got hired as an admin and I got to see like how things were run in healthcare, which was quite Mm eye-opening. You actually see the behind the scenes, the minutia of billing, of check-in, of all these crazy parts that make up the visit. And little by little would come back summers and, and winters doing either administrative type work, like helping them digitize records. But even while doing that, you're you're learning, you're just like a sponge absorbing, oh, this is how the office runs. Like you calculate 18 visits a day and somehow we have an RVU off. Like it was just little by little absorbing. And then I'd go back to my insulated undergrad degree and be like, I I liked working more than I liked school at that point in my life because I didn't feel useful at school because I didn't think I was learning real life applicable stuff. And every time I'd get to work, I'd be like, oh, sweet. This actually affects the world a little bit. No, I mean, naively, but so the also fun thing about uh, an economic downturn uh, graduated during the recession. And because I had the in, they were like, hey, do you want an FTE as an admin? I don't have to be on my parents' insurance. Like, absolutely. I'm 22 years old. I could get an apartment. I could start, you know, doing things. So that's how it happened. Became an analyst within eight months, really, really dug that. And because of my bossy type anus, was pretty much as an analyst telling people like, oh, no, you should do this. <laughs> Doug, and you, Karina, know how my personality gets when I'm like, I have reams of data. I need you to change this. I'm like sweating over here if you don't fix this. Like, no, no. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Uh-uh. So from that became a manager and then bounced around. I've gotten to do some weird stuff in healthcare from, I, I was the, like business manager for eye care. So was negotiating with like Tom Ford and like fashion brands and then got to do like the surgical stuff that Doug and I, so little by little got to kind of build a semi well-rounded career, not on one track exclusively, which is why probably, yeah, I just really enjoy learning while at the same time figuring out like how can I attempt to benefit and I'm not always on, but. I, I 
So two things. One is I like to think of the three of us because I gave a talk to a, a group of um, high school students a couple of weeks ago, and it was introduction to medical careers. And I said, introduction to medical careers. Let me guess. You think that a medical career is either going to be an MD or an RN? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I said, oh. And so I showed a picture of the clinic. And I said, okay, let's actually deconstruct all of this. You have pharmaceuticals, you have tech, you have data, you have books, you have people managers, you have all of these analysis. And then I showed a picture of Mayo Clinic, just like the building. And I said, okay, who do you think all works here? And let's go through all of their operating model. Um, and they were like, oh, so you don't just have to be a doctor? I said, absolutely not. We but you're still associated <laughs> yeah. and you still have a medical career. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Like you have, yes. these are fully functional organisms, if you will. Yeah, it's nuts to think of. We work for one of the bigger companies currently under United Health Group. And if you just start a game I play, is like you meet someone in a meeting, in a big meeting randomly, you have a conversation, and then you try and trace where they report through. And it's, it's like that, the spider's web of, oh my goodness, we have that here. And it's, yeah, it's amazing. But um, a career in quote unquote medicine, yeah, like you said, it's pretty much the most diverse thing ever. You, you could yeah. be a master of X and you're probably going to be involved. And, and I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, you can look at a surgeon, you can look at a fighter pilot, you can look at a judge and it's like, yeah, that is an occupation. But think about the number of people underneath them that allow them to do their work. Because I think two most expensive rooms in the world are an operating room and a courtroom. Because you have someone doing something, but then you have these really, really high pe paid people all standing around who are also being supported by all kinds of people who are running the computers, keeping the lights on, you know, all of those things going on. So I think it's important to understand that, yeah, it's you, you see these people. You know, you watch Top Gun, <laughs> you yes, watch, yep. you know, Grey's Anatomy, and, and, you, and you watch, you know, Judy, you know, Judge Judy, and you, 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 you seem to think sometimes that, oh, yeah, these are these individuals that are doing this thing. And there's an army behind each one of them. Well, maybe not Judge Judy. But there's like, an army behind people who production yeah, they're true, true, because it's a TV show. Yeah. Are you on a first name? basis with judy because you started with just judy and it <laughs> got me excited judge, judge. No, I, I, but it's I, I, it's above and below too it's not just support yeah. staff there is traditionally folks like at that hospital although don't oh, some surgeons might disagree but there are traditionally people supporting them and all of their activities but even think of the people negotiating the contracts for the robotic system that they're using think of the mm -hmm. people who designed the building think of Design the robotics. Design the robotics system. <laughs> Think of even the people who are doing the statistical analysis for the recruitment for the company and then feeding that into the marketing campaigns. Like they are targeted and they do use data to inform the jingle even. And it's just, it's, there's a lot to do within organizations that your career can take you a million different places. And I, I'm, I'm both jealous as well as super happy with where I get to watch everyone go. Cause Doug, you've pivoted, you've yeah. done some weird stuff and I dig it. And same with you, Karina, you've gotten to do some interesting things. 
And I mean, so if, I shouldn't say jealous, but I am in awe of the places you can go, not just in healthcare either, but we just have a really healthcare focused <laughs> table. Yeah. And, and let me give a plug to healthcare. It is so interesting because there's mm -hmm. so much going on yeah. from a insurance perspective, from a billing perspective, from a care perspective, from just about everything. I mean, I've worked in transportation, I've worked in other industries, so I've always come back to healthcare because it's like there's so much going on and they need help. They need yeah. a lot of help. This is true. Well, I think that was my, my second point um, was about evolution of an industry and how that actually impacts sort of people's career pivots. I mean, I can speak up uh, again upon myself is that, yeah, I had, I was the same in your boat. I was going to be an MD and I was going to be a practicing clinician. Um, and practicing clinicians of when I was a child and I saw my dad practice is not how they practice medicine nowadays. I remember going working in a chart room. Chart rooms don't exist anymore. <laughs> okay. Tableau dashboards exist. They didn't exist before. And so if you think about the evolution of an industry as well, lots of industries evolve. And so what you may think that you want to do now with an evolution of an industry, 20 years down the line, it may be obsolete, may be completely changed. You may have been completely changed. Or you may have a niche. Like yeah. Doug, one of the first things of, that when I met Doug, and there was... There was data on a server at our former company that I don't think anyone could code in because it was a language that no one wrote anymore. So it was an obsolete code. And I want to say you like e eBayed the manual to get it. <laughs> because so either if you were still an expert in that, you could own your own consulting firm and just sell your services because of this obsolete technology. Wow. Or if you're Doug, you go find. So what I was told person to person is it's gone. I was like, so these are record. I, I need these for an analysis. Nope, they're gone. Sorry, buddy. And then Doug was like, eh, give me a shot. Yeah, it's, it's. Do you even remember? Sorry, I'm I trying. Do, I do, I do. What I, what I do remember more recently is when it was a classic example of uh, there was this technology called Hadoop that was a way that you could store data. And everyone wanted to get a Hadoop cluster. And so everyone got a Hadoop cluster. And really, it didn't take off like everyone thought it would. But now you're sitting here with this technology, and you have to use it for something. <laughs> and it was being used to hold a whole bunch of learning um, information at a, at a previous employer. Huh. And it was one of those things that the, the, the technology was not appropriate, but because they had set it up and spent all of this time and money to build it, they had to use it. So they were putting all this data on there that wasn't appropriate for the technology. And so what you'd have to do is use an interpreter so it would look like the data was supposed to look like so you could actually use it. And that was one of the things that, that I worked on with you, I think. I think um, so. To, to, to find out what, what coursework and training and certifications and attestations that all of these people had signed to do this, that, and the other thing that was put on a technology that wasn't appropriate for it, but it was one of those things that's like, oh, well, we bought and paid for this thing. We have to use it. And this is something that we're running into right now is there is technology that 
if you let a technologist start chasing like the the newest shiniest object and they start spending a lot of money on it and then you end up having to use it even if it's bad technology and so again it becomes one of those things where you don't if you're going to build something don't chase after something that's yeah it's it's fun and it's interesting but if it gets expensive and then you have all these sunk costs then you're burdening your organization with something that they have to use back to the five paragraph essay did it did it answer the question in the yeah. end <laughs> and yeah you got to challenge yourself to be like is this the right move because it can get really easy to get blinders on to say oh i'm i'm getting the correct answer mm -hmm. it's just going to be it's going to take more resources or more whatever it may be and okay that then you i guess you passed the test but you failed at life because you're like oh i just added complexity and layers of things to get to the right answer mm -hmm. but you weren't thinking like cohesively about the question then yeah and, and you or i guess you fail the elegance test of the the answer to the complex question yeah, and, and, and the other problem you run into is we've got this exotic new technology and we've layered this other exotic new technology on top of it, and we can't find anyone who's actually worked with both of these technologies. <laughs> and so one of the things that you have to worry about is not only is this the right technology, but you have to say, can we find people who can work on it? It's true. Can we find people who have combined this particular database with this particular type of management software and it's like okay this is this is this is one of those things that you start chasing technology and then you start combining technology but you have to start thinking about who knows how to run something like this because at the end of the day you need to run it yeah and you need it to have give you good answers yeah and work well together or good results like i keep thinking back to you mentioned we said something about robotic surgery a few mm -hmm. times and I'm fascinated by does it, is it more cost effective? Are there patient benefits? And I think I've seen research both directions like, yeah. okay, um, is it so blood loss super low with certain robotic surgeries, but is the time like double insert? I'm just fascinated by the data. And I think it's changing as more adopters, like you have to build the profile of the people using the technology too, to Doug's point of you have these surgeons who have done things a certain way for generations. And now you're saying, Hey, it looks like star Wars plus like a video game and uh PS it gets better results, but it takes hundreds of attempts to get to that, like that sweet point of where you're exceeding the results of the previous wave. It's super related, but, I mean, none of us are surgeons, I think. However, Karina, I wouldn't put it past you. Did you have you done some mild, you know, procedures in the past? Yes, unfortunately. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's to family members, but you know, it's all good. <laughs> you have to do it every once in a while. Um, that's actually a great, I think, a, a quasi good segue in the fact that you buy you buy a robot, right? Where it's, I don't know. There's a couple commas in that that uh, <clears throat> cost, right? Yep. And then you're forcing surgeons to use it, but you don't know what the ROI is. You don't know when they're going to use it, how they're going to use it. You're hoping that they're trained to use it. But then you come actually to your operations director and you come to your analyst and you're asking them, well, should we keep it or should we buy another one? What should we do? And my point in being is that 
all too many times in organizations, decisions are made by committee <laughs> and not by individuals. And so how do you how do you talk about that? Because I think most kids coming out of undergrad are getting into organizations and they've never been in an organization in which they haven't necessarily been a, a, a line in, in the chain of command that can maybe like present data to make a courageous dis- decision. Yeah. I, I think I think something we're getting better at, at least throughout the career. So you're describing a life pursuit because if everyone knew exactly who the decision maker was, you'd just bypass those. But mm-hmm. there's so many, even on a committee, there's traditionally, even if it's not said out loud, there's traditionally almost like influencers within said committees. And that's been an interesting piece of the politics of just learning to navigate organizations of the different ones I've gotten the pleasure of being a part of. Like, how do you find who the decision makers are and what are the points that are going to be the most important for their decision-making abilities? so in our previous roles, we knew uh, some of those committees, we just knew, okay, this one is gonna be exclusively focused on quality. Sweet, let's not even mention a dollar sign. <laughs> like I'm not even gonna talk about finances then. Um, in others, it'll just be, this is, okay, this is the CFO meeting. They'll wanna check the box of, okay, it's safe for patients, but here's the money. Yeah. So I think I think a piece that that was learned, but also would have been really cool to talk about in school would be that diversification of, there isn't one answer sometimes. Like mm-hmm. your narrative, your story, your argument, your thesis may have to take different different shapes and forms as you present it to different leaders. And that's perfect. That's, that's the point of the narrative. Cause I don't know. Sometimes there is a single decision maker which makes your life so much easier. But sometimes in most cases at these big organizations, you have like nine, nine committees you have to check the box on. So I think what's been really fun to work on has been the prep almost, um, it's thinking a few steps ahead to say, am I checking all those boxes? Like, am I, and having folks like Doug and pre- previously when we're, we work together, showing people from different diverse backgrounds, like the more well-rounded you can check your pre-work, the more confident you should feel and please poke holes in it. Yeah, Ben, I, I always enjoy the interactions that we have when we've got you, the finance guy in the room with the clinician and also with the doctor so that we can see those different approaches. So the clinician, a lot of the time is someone who's like, you know, they've worked in an emergency room. They, they, they're jockeying the phones and filling out the forms. Um, and then there's the doctor who's like thinking about the science of, you know, a certain treatment. And then there's, people like you <laughs> who are saying, just, okay, but, you just call me a finance guy. <laughs> well, you, you do, you do, you do kind of wear that hat. I feel a role. All right. And, and so it's one of those things that it's like, yeah, we can talk about the science. We can talk about the operation and we can talk about the finances of it and having, having those different perspectives in the room is important because one of the things that has been a struggle for me is when the committee and don't, don't want to be dissing doctors, but if the committee is making a technology decision and it's all administrative doctors, they can make some decisions that are really hard to implement. 
because they don't understand that, no, 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 spinning up all these servers to run all of this Java code to then send the risk quarter information for, for the Affordable Care Act to, to the federal government, that's that's not a small thing. Um, that's what we had to do. <laughs> yeah, speaking from so, experience. Yeah, yeah just from actually having to do that. Um, it, it becomes an issue that, yes, committees work. Finding finding a, a, a good person who, who is kind of the decision maker is helpful, but also having a diversity of views and understanding and of, of what the problem is on a committee is also important. The other problem that I've run with in with committees is that if you've got a steering committee of like 15 people and then you have the group who are actually doing the technical work and there were like three of us it's like why do we it seems top heavy and <laughs> if you need that many people on a committee it better be pretty damn important if it's not then, then there's something that you something that helps you really start examining an organization and start questioning ahead of time it's like so how do you how do you folks make decisions in this organization and these are some of the things these are the soft questions that you know when you are applying for a job they're going to ask you a bunch of questions but you want to ask a bunch of questions too and you want to ask those soft questions about like how do you make decisions here you know what's your day like what do you like about working here? what do you not like and it's funny because you kind of catch people. And it might not be a great interview strategy uh, if they take offense to it, but if they do, you probably don't want to work there. Uh, I actually wrote a paper because it was required viewing in grad school. We had to watch the film Office Space <laughs> for the sake of, okay, this is all real. But the craziest part of that film is you have encountered in your careers, I'm sure, pieces of that film where you're like, oh my good gosh like i this is real this is shocking i think but the big takeaway isn't to say indignantly like oh i would do it differently how dare you this system is broken it's all right well how do i interact in this and how do i still how do i still get done what needs to get done because you can't just abandon the insane systems you're gonna find at a company and you can't come in like a sledgehammer peter gabriel reference um sorry i had to do it is broken i'm gonna fix it and and not have a positive way of doing it you can't just say it's broken i'm i'm out i mean i guess you could if you had that I kind of power did, but anyway. <laughs> in our own way but i mean so we we left one large organization and doug and i are at a pretty other large organization and finding out how to like thankfully we work with some folks who were are A, really good at helping focus, but we're getting better at focusing what's the task at hand and how do we efficiently get it done in these wild, super complex matrix organizations as they like to call them. But yeah, I, I, I highly recommend everyone views office space and then understand at some point in your career, you will be experiencing this distinctly. Unfortunately, unfortunately. I, I did get invited to the pre-meeting meeting for the work group on work groups. I'm not one. And at that point, you have to be like, okay, are we are we drowning in process at this point and not getting stuff done? And this is one thing that I like about working with you, Ben, and working in the position that we're in right now is we don't 
yeah, there's there's some things going on that, that you know there's politics in every in every organization, but we're really we're allowed to implement. Yeah, and it's really helpful. I think we have an allergy to to heavy bureaucracy. I know it has to exist. I know why it exists. I get it. Like read a history book, you figure out very quickly why these things occur. But it doesn't mean you have to do it exactly like that. Respectfully, figure out how to make it work in the system you find yourself. So. I think we are distilling though the conversation down to the five paragraph essay methodology is insufficient for real world careers. Amen. Um, because it's the audience, it's the tactic, it's the process over um, the actual, you know, thought process and thesis by which you're trying to convey um, all of those different things. Now I do think though, is that given everything that we've discussed so far, what would be, you know, your words of encouragement or wisdom to the future generations who are going to follow us, even though we're not that old, I think. No, I'm old. Speak for um, yourself. Yeah. Uh, what would be your respective words of, of wisdom? I think, and I'm, here's the funny part. I'm like the most pessimistic optimist in the world. So I would say optimistic tenacity, not saying like, you come in super cheerful and like chirpy every day. But I was joking. I was like, hey, ask me what my favorite movie characters are because I was thinking about this a lot. And not that I agree with their ethics, but the shark from Jaws and Michael Myers in the Halloween film. And here's why, let me tie this together so no one thinks like he's rooting for the villains. What I don't know what their purpose is. It could be evil. But for some reason, those two characters are relentless in their pursuit of what they're trying to get. And I keep like, I keep thinking like, I think Tony Robbins, like they, both of those characters were like super into Tony Robbins. And for Michael Myers, it was like, I have to murder everything. Uh, and for Jaws, it was like, I'm really hungry for, for human, whatever they're doing, keep it up. But the, the, my point being, sorry, I had to go off the rails, but you, like, they're not giving up. Uh, I know how horrible that is to sound. Like, I keep watching like horror movies and being like, I have a real respect for this villain because they are just relentlessly coming after what they want. Now, it's messed up, I know, but that like that relentless energy to just keep trying because you're gonna get shot down a whole lot. People are gonna give you the talk of, oh, you know, you're low on the totem pole, just keep fighting. I would have left so many times if that was like the truth. It's you got to figure out what the objective is and how do you make incremental progress? And also nothing, knowing nothing is perfect. And nothing's going to be handed to you. And very much so nothing will be handed to you. It is important to find really good people also to be able not to. So we didn't strictly work together us three strictly when we, like we reported to different parts of the company, but I always got to come to, both of you with ideas, advice, like find good people you can confide in, um, make stupid analogies to horror movies in, you know, whatever it may be. And I apologize for the rant about Jaws and Halloween. It's just been on my mind recently because it's been Halloween. It's been Halloween and I'm terrified of that film still. So, Oh, really? Yeah. My mom showed it to me when I was a young kid and it just, it ruined me. We grew up in the suburbs. Uh, I always was like, well, I get home alone. The house is dark. Big jack dude in a white mask and overalls. Yeah, that could happen. Or coveralls, I believe, sorry. Oh, well, it's, you know, they're honest. 
it's funny because if you end up lying to your parents because you're afraid of what will happen to you, you then as a parent say, you know what? I'm going to say, you know what? You, if you tell me the truth, it doesn't really matter what the truth is. I, I, will, I will help you because I'm your parent. I'm not going to punish you. And so I, we need to have you know, that communication open. And I don't know why we're talking about this. That has nothing to do with technology or science, but it is one of those important things is be an honest person. But imagine if you could have gone to a professor for one of your science, technology, engineering, or mathematics courses and had an honest conversation of, imagine professor one who was like, you have to learn all these things. You have to do it exactly this way. What if you could have actually talked to them about, okay, I get it. I know what you're doing. I know why you're doing it. But can you explain to me how this is going to help me in my future career without offending them? That was the piece. Like I That's, felt yeah. like my undergrad was a great not success because I felt like I offended people when I would say like, yeah, okay. I, I ruffled a few feathers. I had an operations. You don't say. I, I had an operations research professor that, that he assigned things to us that we had. You know, you're doing four classes and this one class is taking up 90% of your time. And then you find out that this problem that they've assigned actually can't be solved using the software that you're using. But he didn't know that. <laughs> he didn't vet it ahead of time. And so we were running into situations like that where we were like busting our bahungas to get something done and it just wasn't working. And, and so it's one of those things that you, you deserve it to people to give, you know, don't, don't set people up like that. And that's the thing that I worry about when I see all these interview questions, you know, for technology. And it's all about knowing the intricacies of a language. And it's like, no, I want someone who's curious. Yeah. I want someone who wants to learn. I want someone who's, who's, you know, who's, uh, who, what is the word I'm trying to think of? Who, who a childlike sense of wonder. Yeah. And, <laughs> but also perseverance. Yeah. Persevere. Yeah. Like figure it out. Help me. Help me here. Yeah. Figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, let's work on it together. But but let's you know, let's let's be honest with each other, persevere, always be curious. Yeah. Always be curious. Hardiness, perseverance, just that uh, that grit, much yeah. like horror movie villains, you know. <laughs> Rewatch re a horror movie. Okay, the okay. fact they keep getting up and keep coming after the victim. I'm just in awe. I got to stop now. I know. I'm going to go see a therapist immediately after this. But I think your point on honesty, though, yeah. it's, is a two-way street. Mm -hmm. Is that it's not just for your children, progeny, or whatever, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But it's also for them to seek honest feedback and yeah. to receive honest feedback. Um, I think there was all too many times, I, I mean... When I was a student, I would ask a question, and this the teacher would just look at me and go, "Yeah, um, I don't, I don't know," but would not say, "I'll go find the answer." They very, very rarely said, "I'll go find the answer" because I don't know. It was just I don't know. Um, or there was one professor I was in a macro econ class, the only economics class I ever took in my life. Right? Riveting, yeah, and. I could not solve this problem in the book. And I said, this does not make sense to me. And she read it and she said, this is theoretically incorrect. The book is wrong. Mm. And I went, you didn't know this? And she goes, no, no one's ever brought this up to me. And I'm like, oh, well, 
okay, this is okay. But there was an honesty. She said, okay, this is wrong. In reality, this is how you should have solved it, or this is what the answer should be. Yeah. Um, You've ever read Al Gore's book, An Inconvenient Truth? He talks about, like, in high school, looking at a world map and saying, you know what? It looks like South America and, and Africa. They could nestle them up against each other, and, and that they maybe they were one continent. You go and with Tangier? Like, yeah. And, and the <laughs> teachers were like, oh, this, that's ridiculous. How know? dare you? And they think that, thinking something like that. That was so stupid. And it's true. And so that's another thing. It's, it's like, you know, yeah, stop and stop and look and say, hey, maybe something, maybe we need to think about this differently. Or, or find people you can have that conversation with. Like that professor, your econ mm -hmm. professor actually sounds pretty awesome. Like people would take more econ she was classes. Boss. I liked her. Because you had a conversation and you had that trust that you could. You could say that's like, this doesn't work and I'm not stupid. And she recognized this isn't me trying to cop out. This is, I want to have a conversation because like that's, that's learning. Well, for me, it was, I want to understand. Yeah. That's and learning. I cannot re you didn't, replicate this. So yeah. tell me what I am not understanding. Yeah. You weren't regurgitating. You were engaging. Right. right. That's, that's that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And that was economics. That wasn't, I mean, that had nothing to do with STEM. So I think it's, I think a synthesis of this sort of conversation was all about problem solving and honesty and horror films and Amen. Um, keeping an open mind. Yeah. And conversations and trust yeah. in those. Amen. So with that, thank you, Doug. Thank you, Ben. Oh, this has been this. a pleasure. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Um, always remember to ask yourself, where does your journey stem from?